Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. And one of the beautiful things about being in the sports media is that we kind of get to live out some of our youth dreams in sports. No, I didn't actually think about being in the press box at the Final Four or the Super Bowl. But as a kid, I certainly dreamed of being a part of those events. Uh, being at the Olympics, I've talked about this before, was my ultimate dream, winning Olympic gold. Of course, I was never, ever anywhere near that happening. But I still had the dream, and it's why I love talking to Nick McCarville this week. Nick talks about the dreams that he had and all the the the, uh, the fantasies that he had of competing in Olympic Games and winning medals. And again, no, he hasn't come anywhere near that. But he's a part of the Olympics, and he's a part of Olympic sports. He covered gymnastics and figure skating and tennis for NBC and um, USA Today and uh, and the uh, USOC. And he's going to be back at it again in Tokyo, as long as they have the Olympics, later this summer. And I just love talking with Nick. Uh, we, we talk about how, how we ended up meeting. Again, it's another one of those Fire Island connections. Uh, that wonderful, magical place that I've talked about so many times. Uh, anyhow, here is my interview with Nick McCarville. I am thrilled to be joined now by Nick McCarville. Uh, Nick, exactly how small was the town that you grew up in? <laughs> well, Sid, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, you and I met a few years ago, and we've uh, gotten to connect on a bunch of different projects, but um appreciate you having me on the podcast and by the um, way i love that story of how we met yeah I, do you want to tell it no you tell it they get enough of my voice <laughs> so i think it was gosh said was it 15 or 16 um and i was on fire island i do one full week out there each summer with a friend group and i had rented a house and um yeah i was just hanging out on the beach um i was being a little silly building some sand castles on the beach of the fire island and you had walked over and you were chatting with one of my friends and you mentioned that you worked in sports media and my friends mentioned my name and you were like oh my god i've, I've never met nick mccarville and um there there you were <laughs> <laughs> I again, one of the many reasons I love Fire Island. I was just talking a couple of weeks ago yeah. with Robert Robert Dover, the Olympic equestrian rider. Do you know? Do you know Robert? No, I actually don't. Oh, he longtime fixture Fire Island. Um, they used to have a house there. In fact, it's a house that I'm sure you've been to many times. And uh, anyhow, it's just amazing how many people come through Fire Island who are in our little sports community. Billy Bean has a house out there, and I just love it out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, that's where we got our beginnings. But if we think about or if I talk about my beginnings, um, you know, when I say Montana, people, I think, think, like a ranch or a farm and cows and um, not much else. But I grew up in the capital city, which is Helena. It's about 25, 30,000 people. Um, if you include greater Helena, it's 40,000. <laughs> um, but it's the capital city, obviously, Sid. So it's a split between red and blue. Um, obviously, Montana is a very red heavy state, pretty conservative. Um, I grew up Catholic. 
But um, as far as Helena goes, it, it has a great little art scene. It's got a, a renowned little theater and museum and um, yeah, some good culture going on for the state of Montana. And I grew up in a very, as I said, Catholic family, but sports was kind of all we did. I'm, I'm fifth of six kids and um, we were YMCA soccer and basketball and track and field and tennis. And just every every waking moment, our parents had us out of the house and being active as much as possible. How early did you have the Olympics on your kind of radar? And and did did you have dreams like I did of one day winning an Olympic gold medal and competing and have the <laughs> national anthem played in your honor? Totally, yes, of course. Um, it's funny. I don't think I've told the story before. I. The first like real memories I have of the Olympics is 92 um, when it was in France. And that was when they were about to make the switch to have the winter um, oscillate between the summer games. And so it was the last year, Barcelona, obviously. Um, and when they had the winter games in France and I was obsessed with Christy Yamaguchi. I, I thought that she was the end all be all. And I remember, Sid, I would put on like two or three pairs of thick socks. And we grew up in this like old 1880s mining town house in Montana and it has these great hardwood floors that my mom is very proud of. And I probably won the Olympics on sock hardwood floor figure skating about five times uh, that Winter Games. <laughs> wow, congratulations, Nick. I didn't know thank it was you. <laughs> a gold medalist. Oh, thank you so, so much. Yeah, and I, I, that's kind of my earliest memory. Obviously, um, you know, Lillehammer sits big because of Nancy Tanya. I, I remember all of that drama leading into those games from Detroit and um, the WAC herd around the world. And then from there, I was pretty hooked. I mean, you know, I, I consumed Atlanta as much as I could because it was great TV viewing for kind of the old time linear TV when NBC just had everything and that was it. Um, and from there, it was every two years, obviously, looking forward to another Olympic Games. But what did you want to compete in? What was your sport? Was it figure skating? <laughs> I mean, I never actually, I think I've been figure skating maybe four or five times in my life. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm horrible, um, aside from all those golds in, in sock hardwood floor skating. Um, no, I mean, you know, you look at my resume now as a journalist and as a reporter, tennis was, um, tennis was big. But the thing was with the Olympics is that tennis didn't come back into the Olympic fold until 88. It wasn't really like a big Olympic sport, right? It's still not one of the mainstays at the game. So I would say figure skating was big for me. Um, I loved track and field. Um, Jackie Joyner Kersey was another favorite. Um, I would, my sister was a very good um, track runner. She went to college as a hurdler. And so I would say I won several Olympic medals in our backyard, um, jumping over my dad's uh, like wooden saw horses in the 100 meter hurdles. <laughs> Like so many young boys in America, I I drained a three-pointer for the game-winning shot in my backyard nice. about 200 times. So, got that. Huh? Well, congratulations so, to you, too. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, I'm always fascinated how people get from small-town or medium-town America to their dreams that are so big and so huge that they seem impossible when we're a kid. 
what were like a couple of things that happened to you along the way that helped you get to the Olympics? And if, even if you weren't winning a medal, you were there in the press box and you were talking to the athletes. Mm -hmm. What are a couple of things that got you there? A couple of moments. Well, you know, I've actually been reflecting on this a little bit recently, Sid, and I, I actually want to start with the fact that I'm a cis white man from a middle class family. And I know that that's maybe a, a little OTT, but, um, you know, I think I've been really lucky in that sense. And sure, you and I are different as queer gay men in sports media. But, you know, I think I've I've been very blessed in that sense. And I think in my career, I've tried to be aware of the opportunities that that's allowed me. And that said, that I've also tried to, you know, work my hardest and be the best that I can be as a writer, as a reporter, as someone who now does a lot of on-camera and voice work. Um, but I, I think from the beginning, whether it was, you know, running hurdles in our backyard or I joined the school newspaper when I was a sophomore in high school, my parents really encouraged us to get out and see the world and go for our dreams. And it was pretty evident, you know, when I was early in high school, I love tennis. I was a competitive high school tennis player in Montana, but it was pretty clear I wasn't going to be anything on the pro circuit. I probably could have played maybe D2 or walked onto a D1 team. I chose not to. Um, but I really had, I remember showing up to Seattle University where I went to college, um, declaring my journalism major and telling my professors that I wanted to be a tennis journalist. And a couple of the professors I'm still close with, they almost laughed at me. I mean, it was like, what? here's this 18-year-old from Montana who's saying that not only does he want to be a sports journalist, but he wants to be a tennis journalist. And I just had this singular vision that, um, I could, you know, the, the courts that I saw on TV via NBC and CBS growing up and, you know, Mary Carrillo and Ted Robinson and all these great heroes that I, that were coming through Dick Enberg, all of these people that I was listening to and, um, Howard Fendrick, who was an AP sports writer, Chris Clary, um, that I would be able to one day sort of be a part of that. And, and I really took that singular, uh, tunnel vision, I guess, and, tried to apply it through school and then internships and yeah, I, I guess where I am now. What was your big break? Wow. Um, you know, I, um, I've been lucky, you know, I've, I've had people give me opportunities that I probably didn't deserve um, at every step of the way. You have to have people trust you and people give you chances to deliver for them. Um, I would say probably my big break was, in 2009, I had moved to New York City after being in Seattle for four years for college, and I had interned at Tennis Magazine, and the internship didn't really end very well. I had um, I'd been put in, a, put in a couple awkward situations at the magazine, and um, that's kind of a whole separate story, but I arrived in New York, um, basically like got coffee shop jobs and was trying to do some like freelance writing. I wrote for a volleyball magazine. I was doing kind of little side tennis projects here and there. And this was about the time, I don't know if you remember this, Sid, but the New York Times went really big on specific blogs. 
So it was kind of before podcasts exploded. Everyone wanted a blog for everything. And they had a tennis blog, and it was called Straight Sets. And I must have called <laughs> the New York Times building a million times and finally got put through to a, a living, breathing human being. And I said, I want to write for the tennis blog. And for whatever reason, I believe it was Lynn Zinsner, who used to be at the Times for a long time. She put me through to Bob Getz who was editing tennis at that point. And Bob Getz answered his phone, <laughs> much to my surprise. And I ended up in the summer of 2009, I wrote several blog posts for the New York Times. And then um, I ended up covering my first US Open under a New York Times credential. And I had several stories in print and a lot of stories obviously on the blog. And that was the year that Melanie Udan had her big run. She was 17. And so I, I did some Udan stories. Um, but that, I think, was the one singular break for me because then, Sid, I could say to anyone, essentially, that I was a New York Times writer and um, <laughs> I wasn't making it up. <laughs> and so the, the, the real crux of the story is you just were determined and didn't give up and did not allow people ignoring you to get in the way. I, I wish I actually like logged how many times I reached out to the times. I'm, I must have called like, and this was, you know, Twitter was, this is 2009. Twitter was there, but it wasn't like you could tweet it. Well, I, I guess I could, I probably did tweet at them. I don't know. There was calls and emails and you know, Bob Getz was like, okay, like, sure, you were an intern at Tennis Magazine, but then he made me send him pitch emails. And um, yeah, it, it was really kind of, it was the same mentality actually I had when I got my internship at Tennis Magazine. I had just been in New York my junior year of college, and I knew that Tennis Mag was based there, like Peter Bodo and David Rosenberg and some of these, Steve Tigner, some of these guys are still involved in tennis they were people I read in high school. And so I'm there in college and I just walked into the office <laughs> because I knew that they're in New York and I was there for a vacation to see a, a Montana friend who was living in New York. And I walked up to the admin assistant and said, I want to be an intern here. And I think, you know, when you talk about big breaks or the things that put us in these positions of, um, you know, having opportunities, I think you have to create that for yourself. And I, I think that I was happy to take no for an answer 100 times if it meant that on the 101st time that that would mean I would get an opportunity. In the back of your head, was there the idea that being gay might hold me back from getting to where I wanted to go? Not necessarily where I wanted to go, but maybe... Gosh, that's a good question too. Um, I think I'm maybe full sometimes. Of good questions. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professional journalist, Nick. <laughs> yeah, look at you. You're killing this. Uh, <laughs> I I definitely I didn't think of it that way. I think I felt felt it more like in the moment with athletes. Like, would my voice or my appearance or some of my like just natural who I was being my authentic self, would that put me in some sort of compromised position or would they not want to speak to me or was I not um, cool or hetero enough to be interviewing, you know, Grand Slam tennis players and Olympians? And if I'm fully honest with myself, I think it's probably why I never like really took to 
sports like basketball or baseball or hockey or football because I just felt like those subcultures oozed with sort of frat boy heteroness and tennis was my home. Like I, I knew tennis and I, I knew that I could make it and I didn't have to sort of adhere to a, a, a certain like locker room vibe or yeah, I don't know if that quite makes sense, but um, I definitely navigated it at different at different places through my career. And I, I probably do, I try to be more aware of it now, but I probably do it um, sort of absentmindedly now sometimes too. I was just last night speaking at the uh, Sacramento Kings Pride Night, and I talked about how when I was a kid, I, I was the son of a great basketball player in my hometown, and I was supposed to play basketball, and freshman year, I walked into the locker room of the basketball team, and I felt so out of place, I never went back, and I found my way to uh, individual sports, track and field, and running, and so I completely get what you're saying about the wow. locker room atmosphere of a basketball uh, over maybe a tennis or, uh, or, or track and field. That I have to, I have to say that's such a poignant um, story, and I think it's so important to share because I actually had the exact same experience. I was a pretty good basketball player growing up, and my freshman year of high school, they switched the team schedule, and the freshman boys were meant to practice before school, which meant that you had to shower after practice before school. You couldn't go home and shower after practice. And I literally didn't try out for the basketball team because of that. Wow. I, fo I focused on tennis. I, I mean, I, you know, I ended up, I think I probably ended up helping my tennis career, but I probably could have played, I wasn't that good at basketball, but I probably could have played competitively like my freshman and maybe sophomore year on the basketball team. And I just didn't. I, I was so terrified of that situation. But but I also want to say, and I, I'm sure you probably made a similar point with um, the King's Pride Night, is tennis, track and field, um, those two sports kind of ended up being mine, and then tennis sort of bubbled to the top. But they gave me so much self-confidence as an individual sport. And, you know, then you were part of a high school team, what have you. But I felt so empowered as an athlete, as a, you know, young student um, who had success outside the classroom. Um, I felt inspired by especially the female athletes that I connected with. Monica Sell. I was obsessed with Monica Sellis, Capriati. Um, I followed the WTA every day from middle school on. Um, and so, you know, you, we both sort of talk about the basketball experience, but to the flip side, tennis was so imperative for me as a human, as a young queer teenager to find a, a little bit of self-confidence um, when I really needed it. Well, everybody, uh, hang tight. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Nick McCarville. Okay, we're back with Nick. And Nick, you said something before the break that I wanted to, to hit upon. You're talk, talking about um, whether whether um, you being gay would be an issue with the players that you were interviewing. And you have interviewed all of the biggest names across tennis and many other sports. Have you ever been aware that it was an issue? No. Uh, I mean, you know, quite frankly, no. 
I think that the only issue has ever come from internally. You know, I, I think the only way that it's ever held me back is from my own sort of, um, you know, trying to adhere to things that I, to practices or to social norms that I thought were quote unquote more appropriate or more hetero or it, it was really a script that I made up in my head. Um, you know, I, I think that I have just, I'm 34 now. I think that I've just gained self-confidence in every iteration of my life um, as a professional, as a person. Um, I, I'm, I've been in therapy proudly for the last few years because I, I want to continue to understand myself and where I am as a as a person and so i think that if ever said it was more you know my it was all sort of dictated for myself I, i'm sure there's better words to describe it as far as from like a um interpersonal or communication standpoint but um i'm i don't think i've ever had an athlete bat an eye or roll their eyes or yeah, I just, um, I've always done my job in the most professional way I'm, I know how, and I think the athletes really respect that. One of the other people with me at uh, the Sacramento Kings Equality Night was Christina Carl. Christina is a baseball editor, and she's now at ESPN. She's transgender. And she transitioned mm -hmm. um, after she started her career, and she would cover the, uh, the Chicago White Sox. And she lived in Chicago at the time. And she's, she's talked about how, you know, her biggest fears and all of a sudden, you know, she's, she, she, she looks and is one name one day and then comes into the clubhouse another day and she just looks different. She goes by a different name. And Paul Canerco was one of the guys that was in the locker room at the time. And, and she said it, it was like nothing had changed. He, he, except for her gender, he addressed her by her name, by her gender. And it was, he just kind of set the tone and just nothing changed. And she's gone on to achieve these incredible things being transgender yeah. and everybody knows. And I hear this over and over again, that it just, like you said, the, the athletes really don't care. Maybe they did 20 years ago, but they don't now. Well, and, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but Christina was on one of the panels that we did that I was, I think I moderated right. it um, yep. as part of the Outsports, um, yeah, the Pride Conference that you put together. And what I thought to add on to that is that Christina was also talking a lot about sort of the newsroom and pitching and that atmosphere. And, you know, because that's the flip side of it is, you know, interpersonally, how are you dealing with people who might hire or fire you? Or how are you making, for me as a freelancer, I've always had to, you know, try to bring my best self to work also because I need jobs. <laughs> you know, I don't work for one specific organization. I spent two years with USA Today um, as their tennis writer, but that was just the slams. And so there's always been freelance work um really since i moved to new york and so that's where i would say too uh, i i think i really learned along the way as to how to network well and how to reach out to people and taking those no's for an answer and not not shying away from who i was as a person because i did see my strengths in that sense to 
try to get a good writing job or be on camera or, or get the gig at the Olympics or the U.S. Open or what have you um, and really seize those opportunities when when they did come around. In the couple minutes that we have left, I want to just talk about your Olympic experience because this, this is an Olympic podcast after all. Um, what Olympian or Olympians kind of stand out to you as some of your, your, your favorites that you've gotten to interview or watch? I mean, I know you, you cover a lot of figure skating. Um, who, who really stands out as particularly special? And, and, you know, maybe if you have an anecdote about them. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it was really special to cover Adam Rapon in Pyeongchang a couple of years ago. I can't believe that's now over two years ago. Um, I had known Adam since before the Sochi Olympics when he didn't make the team in 2013-14. And just to kind of watch him work so hard, Sid, to get to Pyeongchang. And then everyone within figure skating sort of knew this like quirky, um, quick-tongued, uh, sassy, uh, very overconfident Adam Rapon, and he he knew that the Olympics were his platform um, to be an, a household name, and he used it. And my my producer um, Marissa and I just kind of watched, we knew that any Adam content was going to do really well. So we tried to do fun, quirky, different stuff with him. Um, you know, I've had the great honor of covering Yuzuru Hanyu, both in Sochi and, um, in Pyeongchang. He's the two-time reigning men's gold medalist in figure skating. And he is, he's literally one of, I would say the most five most famous people, not just athletes, people in Japan. And he is so humble and he'll, his English isn't perfect, but he'll try with you. And I don't know if you've ever seen all the coverage on the Winnie the Pooh uh, stuffed animals that get thrown on the ice for him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) NBC became like obsessed with that in Pyeongchang. And we had like nightly news and all of these different NBC entities were trying to understand like what what happens with all the poo bears once they're once they get cleared and so I'm like running around the arena and I'm like chasing down the Japanese team leader and talking to the Japanese federation and Yuzuru I I literally chased him down the um the mix zone so they go through like all the different TV interviews and he had he probably had like 12 or 15 steps between TV and getting to the written reporters. And I just walked with him and I was like, Yuzu, can you clarify for me where the Pooh Bears go? <laughs> and he just has a big smile on his face and he's like, oh, we give them to a local charity. Like the Federation gives it the, and we still, we, we tried to source what he was saying directly for these bigger NBC entities. I, I think I would say I was like 60% satisfied with the story we ended up putting out. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he's a megastar. Federer and Serena, you know, I get to deal with them a lot. Obviously, they're global icons. Um, yeah, I, I've just been so lucky. I think I like the Yuzu story. Adam was great to watch in Pyeongchang. Um, you know, and then I do have to say too, Sid, I feel so lucky that I get to work in what's the best women's sport in the world. The WTA women's tennis, Billie Jean King and the original nine put it on the map. They make more money than any other female sport in the world. The prize money is equal at the slams and a lot of the biggest events. 
They are Simona Halep is a national hero, Petra Kvitova is a national hero, Bianca Andreescu now in Canada, you know, and you look at the Americans and what Venus and Serena have helped continue in the U.S. with women's tennis, it, it really is phenomenal. And, and that obviously lends to the Olympic side of things, too, because um, I think tennis, the, the players themselves, I think they do see the Olympics as a big part of the calendar now. Do, do you know in, and you may have not gotten your specific assignments yet, but do you know in Tokyo uh, what sports you'll be covering, where we should look for you? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to say I'm going to be in Tokyo working for the USOPC for Team USA. Um, so you can find my stuff on teamusa.org. Um, I think I'm mostly going to be doing um, gymnastics. I covered Simone Biles' uh, every move, literally, in Rio. And I think that's what I'll do a lot in Tokyo. Um, and then, of course, I'll be doing. Uh, um, a lot of tennis in that first week. Uh, and then in Rio said I did some swimming, I did diving, fencing, indoor volleyball, beach volleyball, um, wherever I'm sent, wherever there's a big American story, um, that's where I'll go. And I think it'll also have to do with like, if my main store, sport is gymnastics, then whatever's physically closest to it too. Um, so I might be covering some canoe kayak, even though I know nothing about canoe kayak. <laughs> um, but I, I obviously am excited for it. I welcome um, the challenge. And um, yeah, uh, all my stuff will end up on the Team USA website and social channels. Well, I end every one of these podcasts asking the person uh, to name uh, an Olympian who inspired them, but I think it sounds like we started the podcast with that because it would be Christy Yamaguchi for you. I mean, if she inspired <laughs> you to five, five golds on uh, double sock hardwood <laughs> give, or skating. give or take. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, if I were to, I would definitely say Christy, and I actually told her that story when I interviewed her in 2013. I interviewed her for the first time. She was so nice. Um, and I've interviewed her since I would say Christy and I would actually also say Carl Lewis, um, you know, track and field didn't end up being something I did in high school, but it was big for me when I was a kid. And so I mentioned Jackie Joyner Kersey, but Carl Lewis and Michael Johnson, they were huge for me when I was younger. Um, so yeah, let's, let's give a hat tip to Christy, um, and to, uh, you know, the man who can jump as far as anyone, Carl Lewis. Well, I, I, uh, there are two for me and, you know, I haven't mentioned them on this podcast, but since you mentioned one, Carl Lewis is definitely one of mine and I'll, I'll have, ah, to save, have to save the other one for when somebody mentions, uh, her, but, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was a track and field athlete. My dad was a track and field athlete. I love track. He was the star of the of the 1984 games along with uh, a couple other people like Greg Louganis but yeah Carl Lewis was it for me yeah massive um no and I just he was the star of 84 but then he came back where am I thinking of him from 92 96 oh 84 and 88 were his two big moments i mean 80 the 84 games for carl lewis in 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 los angeles that was when he became a superstar 
Well, then I must have been watching like old tapes when I was a kid because I'm sorry to say I he wasn't continued. Born yet. <laughs> he continued, Nick, through I think '96 was his last Olympics. So, uh, so okay, he, yeah, yeah. So that's Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, well, anyhow, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're in Hawaii now, so I, I'm <laughs> honored that you would take time away from some coconut water and the beach. But uh, thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon. Yes, and I just want to say really fast, thank you for having me first off, and thanks for everything that you've done in, in the sporting space. I, I think that people listening to this podcast obviously will know you well, but, um, you know, from OutSports to your mentioning, I mentioned the OutSports conference, and what you've done for the queer sports platform has been massive, and um, I'm, I'm really honored to say I've been just a small part of it, so kudos to you, and um, hopefully you this summer on the beaches of fire island <laughs> i know i'm gonna be there the first weekend of the olympic games though so i'm 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 mostly hoping that uh, somehow i don't end up in tokyo because i think i'd rather be on fire island but we'll see <laughs> fair enough thanks thanks again sid i always love talking to lgbtq sports reporters because their experience gives us some insight into the locker room environment and the comfortability of of athletes with having LGBTQ people around. And, you know, we'll talk to, to people all the time who, <laughs> we'll talk to women who have naked men in front of them and they'll wait until, you know, if you would kindly put on some pants, that would be great, or or not, if that's what they choose. Uh, the idea that these locker rooms are these horrible homophobic places is just so misplaced. And I think that talking to LGBTQ people, Nick McCarville and Elsie Granderson and myself and others, it just tells you that these guys, these guys really don't care. Um, I hope you will follow Nick McCarvel on Twitter. It's N-I-C-K-M-C-C-A-R-V-E-L. He will be at the Tokyo Olympics, as he said, as long as they take place. And he'll be a good follow, particularly for that and for all the tennis action that's coming up. Tomorrow, I hope you will tune into the LPF podcast, Level Playing Field with Randy Booz. He is going to talk to Colin Martin who is a professional soccer player. He was in Major League Soccer. He uh, is in the level below Major League Soccer now playing in San Diego, but he still has, you know, again, another guy who will tell you that the homophobia in the locker room and on men's professional sports is just completely overblown. Anyhow, check out Randy's podcast and we'll talk to you next week.